Welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast, where each episode brings you compelling conversations and stories designed to entertain, enlighten, and encourage. And now here's your host, Brian Sexton. And welcome into the Intentional Encourager podcast. I'm your host, Brian Sexton. Thank you for joining us again today. And this episode of the Intentional Encourager podcast is going to be freaking brilliant. And that's because I have Bob Sager. Bob is the president and CEO of Spearpoint Solutions. And you can find Bob on LinkedIn. You can find Bob on a lot of other platforms that, that he'll, he'll get into in just a minute. Uh, but it is my pleasure to welcome to the Intentional Encourager podcast. Bob, I, I said that, you know, you, you have a flub up. I don't edit these things out because here's the thing, man. I, you know, it is what it is. You, when you're working with limited talent, you know, it is what it is. Bob Sager joins me on the Intentional Encourager podcast, not Bobcast. Bob, how are you doing today? I, I'm great. And I have to tell you, I kind of like Bobcast. You ought to run with that, man. You you really, you know, if you do your own pot, if you do your own podcast, just call it a Bobcast. Yeah, I like that a lot, Brian. I'm going to have to permanently borrow that from you. It's yours, my friend. It's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's I, I freely have, get, as you freely give to others, my friend, it's freely given to you in return. So, man, hey, I can't man, I thank like you that. enough for joining me this morning. Bob, you, you have taken a really different approach during the pandemic and before the pandemic and involving other people in what you're doing. And I want to start there because I, I think it's just, it, it, it's, and you and I have known each other a little bit, so it's, it's, it, it's not surprising to me, but you have taken it to a, a, an intentional level during this pandemic. What prompted you to, to do what you're doing with your offerings and, and just say, here you go. I'm going to take these to another level and try to help more and more people through this pandemic. Well, look, I, I think people learn, at least if they're paying attention, they learn over time that whatever you put out is going to come back to you uh, and it's going to be amplified a little bit when it comes back. Now, and I think you have to do that, though, in the right spirit. And, and what I mean by that is you've got to give to others, not with the expectation of return, not with sort of a, a quid pro quo mindset, but you've got to, uh, to give to others because you want to, mm -hmm. because that's how you live your life and because that's how the world is made better. Now, and let me just, you know, for your entrepreneurial listeners, let me clarify that. Mm -hmm. I think you give in everything. And I think you give in every business transaction. So how can you do that? People say, well, how do you give in business transactions? Well, uh, what you do is you make sure, and all exceptional companies do this, you make sure that your customers get so dramatically more in value than what they're paying you that it's it's a total no-brainer to continue to be a customer it's a total no-brainer to tell others it's just it's a it's such a good way to attract the right people and 
and when you're doing that, when you're giving with every transaction, you feel so good about what you're doing. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I think it's, uh, and look, it took me a long time to learn that lesson, Brian. But it's a lesson worth learning because it just pays such dividends, not just economically, but in the fulfillment that you uh, have in your life. Mm-hmm. And Bob, here's the thing with, with a say, I, I love what you said there. And I'm going to park on that for just a minute because a lot of times in a selling transaction, years ago when I got into sales, you were the product expert. Everything about your product or service, you were the expert as a salesperson. It was your job to do all the education and, and get your customer as educated as they could be to make the right buying decision. Well, now customers are educated right here before you ever touch them. They probably know more about your company and your product or service than you do at times. And they read reviews and they do other things like that. And I love what you said there about about value. In your opinion, how is how is value best transferred in the mind of a customer when they don't know the value of what you're bringing in the first place? So how do you over deliver that experience of value? Well, I, I think you have to do things that are unexpected. You know, it, uh, we were we were had a, having a pretty good conversation uh, on LinkedIn in the comments on a post on LinkedIn about uh, there was a company that uh, uh, that's a service provider of mine that reached out just sort of a customer feedback survey and when something that they said the language that they used in there was astounding to me because what they said was it's important to us well who cares right i mean who cares what's important to you customers do not care about you until what's important enough to them to care about you right hey another so, freaking brilliant point my man <laughs> <laughs> well it's so it's so true and and i and far too many companies and salespeople are too focused on themselves and so you know i heard a story early in my career and it took me a while to really, really, truly grasp the meaning of this. I was talking about there are two people on opposite sides of a curved wall. And the person on one side of the wall looks at the wall and says, that's a concave wall. The person on the other side of the wall says, no, it's not. It's a convex wall. Now, who's right? From, from their perspective, they're both right. So I think the smart salespeople, the smart entrepreneurs, the smart companies are the ones that can go around the, uh, excuse me, the other side of the wall and take a look from their customer's point of view and get out of their own head. Uh, You know, so many people talk about, um, we're so great, we're so great, we're so great. Well, Mm -hmm. what? Of course you're going to say that, but you know, all customers listen to the same radio station. It's WIIFM. You know what's in it is, for right? me? Yep. Exactly. Yep. yep. So if you if you do not do a good job of empathizing with your customers, getting on the other side of that wall and seeing things from their point of view, and, and figuring out what is in it for them, right? 
um, and, and talk about those things. That same customer survey that I just alluded to could have been much more effective in their response rate to it, could have been so much better if they would have said, you know, your answers are extremely valuable because they're going to help us serve you better, mm -hmm. right? Uh, and we talked about unexpected things. And I know a guest on, on one of your previous episodes or maybe a couple of previous episodes, Kristen Sherry, uh, we were talking about how, you know, why not when somebody responds to that customer survey, give them an unexpected of 10% off coupon on the next purchase. That's going right? to get me motivated to do that survey. Well, I don't even think you ought to say that in the, in the beginning. Uh, I, I don't think that you should bribe them to do a survey other mm -hmm. than this is going to help us serve you better. This mm -hmm. is some benefit for them should be laid out to inspire them um, to respond. But then after they respond, then that's when you have the opportunity to deliver something unexpected. And when you deliver unexpected value like that, um, you surprise and delight them. And, and that, that in, a, in a sea of noise, that's the kind of thing that floats on top. Well, Bobby, in, in, in that, that statement translates to anything that you do because people will say, well, I'm not a salesperson. I don't sell anything. I don't... If you deliver unexpected value to other people, you're going to develop a reputation pretty quickly of being a person other people want to be around because they get something from you that they don't normally expect. And then, and then for the salespeople, here's a thought. I, I, I love what you said there. The thought I had around that is the most sensitive mechanism in business is a customer. They're sort of the purpose of being. In That's exactly right. Yeah. We don't <laughs> exist without customers. And, and Bob, I, I, I have a hard time understanding. And again, the gray in my beard will, will, will give an indicator of the years that I've, I've been around in doing this is that I don't understand how companies look at themselves and say, well, what can we do better instead of saying, what do customers want from us that we're not giving them right now? Or we haven't thought about giving them. You know, what does the customer want? Because if everybody goes out and says, we've got the lowest price, and their service is terrible, you know, and, and, I, and Bob, I've used this analogy. I mean, to hijack a conversation, but I've used this analogy <laughs> is that, you know, if McDonald's called me and said, Brian, guess what? We had a contest and you put your name in the hat and you won free Big Macs for a year. I like other things at McDonald's. I don't like Big Macs. So that, that is of no value to me. It's a very, right. you know, they may think, oh my gosh, you know, Brian, man, free Big Macs for a year. How do you feel? Cheated? I'd rather have filet of fish <laughs> or a quarter pounder. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and we don't consider a lot of times salespeople and businesses don't consider what's really valuable to their customers. I want to, I want to hand that ball back to you now and, and talk about the real value to customers. Well, yeah. And, and how do you know what they want um, if you're not asking? Getting back to that same analogy that we were just talking about on the customer feedback survey, um, uh, a couple of people asked me, well, how should we do this? 
And I said, first, you got to respect people's time. Because as I like to say, there are five forms of wealth. And money is only part of it, right? It's money, time, satisfaction, relationships, and health. And so you've got to, even though you're maybe not asking for, for them to send you a check, you're, you're asking for a non-renewable asset. You're asking for a, a portion of their time. And so you got to be respectful of that. So the, the survey that I came up with is a simple three-question survey. And I shared this with a couple of different people uh, you know, that had commented on that post that asked. And I said, you know, the first question of your survey is, you know, what is the thing that you liked most about and fill in the blank, your most recent transaction, what we're doing, et cetera. Um, the second question is, you know, what is an area uh, for improvement? You know, where are we not quite meeting your expectation? Something along, along those lines. And then the third question is, how can we deliver something better for you? What are we not doing that you'd like us to do? That mm -hmm. kind of a question. Those are conversation opening questions. And when you can have a dialogue with your customers and, and the technology that exists today makes it so easy, so much easier to do than it used to be. Mm -hmm. When you can do that, people like to do business with people and companies that they perceive care about them. And so when you legitimately care, you want to ask those questions and you're not afraid to hear the answers because you sincerely want to improve uh, what you're delivering to the customer. Does, does that make sense, Brian? Makes, it makes perfect sense. And I'm reminded of a quote by the great Zig Ziglar. And, and Zig is, is probably my, next to my, my late dad, Zig is my sales hero. And, and I've gotten to have several conversations with his son, Tom, and I told Tom, I said, one of my favorite quotes that, that, that really resonate with me that your dad said, he said, people love to buy, they hate to be sold. And, and it's just as true now as when Zig came up with it 35 years ago or 40 years ago. It's still true. And Bob, what, what, it, what troubles me, I guess, is, is in, this, in this new world that we have, where people get on their cell phones or get on a laptop or an iPad and they buy things, there's none of that, there's none of that transference of feelings. They're hopping online to buy something that they see or they got a coupon to buy it. And there's, there's no value being transferred other than the fact of I can sit in my pajamas and order a shirt from Kohl's or Amazon or something like that. There, there's no customer relationship there. It's all transactional. How do companies, how do you coach companies to get away from transactional relationships with their customers? Well, I like that question. And it's a, a, the question to ask is, and by the way, let me back up just one. Would you consider that. it freaking brilliant? Because again, that's your that's your thing, and I want to see if how many times I can get you to say, "Man, that's a freaking brilliant question." <laughs> that was a goal of mine, my friend. Hey, can I let you in on a secret? I I'd love to hear. We are we're all about secrets here on the Intentional Encourager podcast. All right, on. here's the secret that the title 
of my book, 101 Freaking Brilliant Business Ideas, is not mine. I, I, I say it's not mine. And uh, it was given to me by my wife because, you know, I, I do a lot of work with companies coming up with ideas and strategies to help them uh, uh, improve, um, improve their top line and bottom line, improve their employee engagement, those kinds of things. And, and I just, maybe I'm a little weird, Brian, but I have fun just coming up with these uh, concepts. And so yeah, don't I feel bad. To, I'm, I'm the same way, Bob. I, my I wife has told me for 24 years, you, you're the weirdest dude I know. Okay. <laughs> All right. My hat, I had a whole bank of these and I'm like, you know, these are just sitting in my, you know, in a file yep. and they're not doing anybody any good sitting in a file. And I said, I think I'm going to compile these things in a book. And uh, so I was just sort of struggling coming up with a, uh, with a memorable title. And my wife and I are just driving along in a car one day and we're having a conversation about that. And I said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm having a tough time coming up with a title for this book. And she said, why don't you just call it something like 101 freaking brilliant business ideas? <laughs> and I, I almost wrecked the car. <laughs> I mean, it was so brilliant. It was freaking brilliant. Yep. Right? I mean, it was just so good. And she just, and she's a pretty creative person too. And she just came off, you know, just right off the top of her head, she came up with that. And it's, uh, I mean, it is so, I've had more people tell me, you know, how brilliant that is than anything else. And I always, you know, give uh, uh, um, credit where credit's due to my wife for that title, because that's where it came from. So. Hey, the, the most brilliant thing you did was asking her to marry you. That's, that's, that's where it is for guys like us is, is that's the smartest thing we ever did was, was asking our wives to marry us. You know, that's because well, there's not yeah. much for me. There's not much going on up here. So there's gotta be something else, you know? Well, listen, Brian. Yeah. I did what all men should aspire to. And that's I'm married up. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. So, to that. I, I hope every now and then she has that thought too, but uh, I think it all the time, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fortunate it'll be 25 years next month. Yeah, um, we've got, and, uh, my wife and I've got 24 coming up in October. So yeah, I, yeah. I, I understand. Two old married guys just sitting there here talking go. about life and business on the Intentional Encourager podcast. But right. I got to ask yeah, you I apologize. This. I, got, I, I got way hey, late. I, you, you know asked what? me a question. And <laughs> you know what? That, that, that's perfectly fine because again, this is why I have this format the way that I have it is because I want everybody to be a part of a conversation that you and I are having and conversations have layers to them and it's okay. I mean, you know, sure. it's, it's a conversation that we can have, you know, we, we find we were talking about value a minute ago. I value my wife more and more the older I get because I realize that, Hey dummy, you might want to listen to some things she has to say. She might have something she might have something of real value to add that, that I need to listen to. And so, yeah, it's, man, this is why these conversations exist. I got to ask you about conversations that you're leading with other people. And that's the meaningful conversations platform that you have developed. You had it before the pandemic, but you've really developed it a little bit differently since the pandemic. Talk about the meaningful, meaningful conversations platform and, 
and, and how that's that, what that's done for you, not only for others, but what it's done for you. Right. Well, it, it just one slight correction. We call it meaningful connections. You know what? Again, it's, you know, it, it's my, it's, it's, it's my limited mind capacity. Hey, Bob, that reminds me. I had a podcast guest earlier in, in the, in the episodes, Kim Thompson Pender, and I butchered her company like three times during the podcast. <laughs> And she had to correct me, and I'm like, "Kid, you're working with limited resources here, but it's meaningful yeah. connections." Thank connections. you, Bob. I appreciate yeah. the correction. And and actually, it's that that title is even more applicable now because uh, what we're doing with that is, you know, it's just a it's it's a group of people. It's I call it um, sort of volume business networking. So it's business networking, but it's coupled with, we have a segment that we do on the new version of it, where we're utilizing a, a simple creative thinking method um, that I invented called uh, Anchor Term that I use in, in uh, our creative thinking training fun shops uh, that I use uh, in a lot of cases in developing strategies for companies. And we do a little mini version of that where we'll pick a beneficiary of that particular conference. And each person that is participating, they take a few minutes and develop some ideas and strategies on how that person can improve their business. And I'll give you an example of that, um, if you don't mind me sharing. Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so we had a, we had a, a podcaster uh, uh, participated in a few conferences back. His name is uh, Ido Singer, and his uh, podcast. Can I say the name of his podcast? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, <laughs> it's called One Last Thought. And because uh, you, know, you might give on... me a future guest idea there, so yeah, go ahead. I, you know, fire away, man. <laughs> right, right. So, uh, so the the goal was to come up with ideas for additional ways that Ido could, um, could monetize his podcast. And so, and he was just blown away. Now, let me tell you what the benefit to that segment is. Uh, the people that are participating in that, they get to learn a little something about utilizing creative thinking methods to get off of that circular train of thought. Mm -hmm. um, and, and anybody that's the beneficiary, um, you know, they're going to get some ideas. They're sort of crowdsourcing ideas, for lack of a better term, mm -hmm. um, and, and, and getting something really cool out of that and maybe something that they can actually run with and, and, and develop. You know, they're, they're sort of, if, if people, anybody that's listening to this show that's participated, they know they're sort of idea seeds. You know, they need developed a little bit more, but, uh, but everything starts with an idea, right? Well, I mean, and Bob, here's the thing too. I mean, to jump in there, but you, no, what fine. you do with those, with those uh, type of, of conversations is not only do you pick up ideas, but it taps into your own brain to make you more creative to it, it, one, you become more creative. And I think that's where you were going with it to tap into their creative thought processes. But the second thing is you learn how to tap into your giving processes. Because a lot of times we, we take ideas and we say, well, man, I got to guard it 
like it's the last $100 that I've got. And, and a great part of life and humanity is, is that we learn to give more than we receive. And we give freely. And so I, I would think that an un, unintended benefit, and make, correct me if I'm wrong, is that people understand the power of giving a little bit more in helping someone else get to that next level or next plateau in their business or their life. Yeah, it, it, it is. And by the way, that's not necessarily an unintended benefit. It uh, might be for them. I, I think you're very <laughs> intentional about that. But, but yeah, and the and the other thing that that I have found, it, this almost never fails. And, and and I let people know this that in the process of working on coming up with ideas for somebody else, with that in mind, mm-hmm. you you almost always end up coming up with some ideas that are going to benefit you. Have nothing to do. It's just because you because you elevated that uh, your creativity and mm-hmm. you you focused on that you were intentional about it. Um, it just it happens and and when you get I have to tell you when you get that that creativity activated um, in a way um, it can take you to some pretty amazing places. I got to ask you one other question around this and then I want to get into your story. And, and talk about your life and your story. But have you had in the meaningful connections, have you had one of those, those V8, I call them V8 moments. You've got, you've had a light bulb, an aha moment where you go, I didn't expect this from this conversation, or I didn't expect this from this conference. Have you had those moments? And, and what was it like for you as the moderator to have those moments where it just came back to you and just kind of hit you in the face. Like I, I totally didn't expect that. Oh, well, first of all, I have to say that every time that I'm doing a training, we're doing, we call them fun shops cause they're not work. Um, I'm doing a fun shop and that's sort of a mini fun shop. And, you know, in that I'm almost, I've done that with, thousands of people probably, you know, over the last uh, dozen years or so. And, and I'm amazed. I'm constantly amazed that like, like somebody has come up with an idea that just, I mean, my chin hits the floor. It's like, whoa, holy smokes. That is such a good idea. So the, the creativity of people it just never ceases to amaze me. And, and I have to tell you, frankly, for a lot of them, it amazes them. Mm-hmm. And I, I could tell you some stories on that, you know, if we have time uh, or, you know, if we get into our next segment, we talk about some of that uh, training uh, work that, that we do. It, it's astounding. It's so fun. Uh, and if, when we get into that, I'll, I'll tell you how I feel every time we're doing it. I was a part of one of the meaningful connections and I, I will I'll never forget this. One of the questions you asked of us in the conference was what's your favorite breakfast cereal? Okay. Now when I was a kid, I was a little heavy when I was a kid, I was heavy till I was about 36, 37 years old. And you said, what's your favorite breakfast cereal? And I thought you don't have all day. I could run <laughs> the aisle. I could run the breakfast cereal aisle of stuff that I ate when I was a kid that I liked. And, and it was like, you know, the guy liked everything. I was, you know, I wasn't Mikey. I liked everything, you know, frosted (laughs) flakes and cinnamon toast crunch. And 
I just thought that was really neat because I'd never had anybody ask me in something like that, what was my favorite breakfast cereal? So now I'm trying to go through my head going, man, what did I eat? And most of the time for us, we ate what was on sale because I, you know, my, my parents right. didn't, didn't have a lot of money. And so we just ate what was on sale. And now we had, we had good stuff, but we ate what was on sale. Then when I got to be an adult and I had to spend my own money, I was like, yeah, Malto meal tastes kind of like Raisin Bran. I'll just grab this at Walmart, you know, and because uh, I was spending my own money. I just thought that was so neat that you asked that kind of question because I, I probably hadn't thought about that in 25 years or better. And, and I just, I love that. I had to, I had to mention that because I still remember, I'm like, how am I going to sit here and think for, for an hour about the, the kind of breakfast? Then I got hungry. I was like, whoa, what kind of cereal do we have in the house? You know? So, Hey Bob, I want to take you and I want to go back and take me as far back as you want to take me from point A to point B. Cause I like to ask folks how they got from point A to where they are today. And so take me back as far as you want to go in, in your life journey and your story to where you got to today. Well, I, I'll see if I can give you the short version because I don't want to bore your listeners. Um, hey, we got, you know, we got all kinds of time, man. It's, you know, the, these, these listeners are locked in for a good bid, man. So you, you take your time. Go ahead. Well, okay. That, that's fine. As uh, I, I'll tell you about a turning point in my life. Uh, and that's after I graduated from college, I, I worked a full-time job and went to school full-time. So anybody that tells you that can't be done is not, they're lying. They so can. where'd you go to school, if you don't mind me asking? Well, I went to Miami University uh, for a while. And that's then, no bueno, because I went to Marshall, and Marshall for years with, uh, with, with Miami. <laughs> hey, there was a, I got to throw this in here. And I remember... Uh, and this has been almost 20 years ago. Marshall and Miami played in the same football conference. They played in the Mid-American Conference, and then Marshall right. went to Conference USA. And for two or three years, if you are a, a football fan, every year the game on the calendar was Miami and Marshall because Marshall had Byron Leftwich playing quarterback for them, and Miami had now future NFL Hall of Famer Ben Roethlisberger playing quarterback for them. Bob, do you remember, and this has been, gosh, again, this has been almost 15, 16 years ago, Miami came to Huntington and played a game, and one of their assistant coaches punched a, a fan. I do remember that. That was in Huntington. Yeah, that was in, that yeah. was in, that was in Huntington. In this incident. <laughs> yeah, but, but I'll say this. Those schools have since played. We, we played Miami, and they have been fantastic games. That's one game that – that as a Marshall grad and as a fan, um, there's respect there, you know, because you always know that Miami is going to be a quality opponent. Miami of Ohio is going to be a quality opponent. And uh, I always enjoyed the battles that, that, that the Red Hawks and the, and the Thundering Herd had over the years. So, listen, uh, by the way, you said Miami of Ohio. Miami is in Ohio. Yes, it is. Yes, it that. is. Well, I was just using the media's term. You know, those not guys at ESPN, you. they're you know, Miami of Ohio. Like, like right. you know, you're not calling it Miami of Florida, you know. Right. And, by the way, Marshall has uh, uh, what an incredible story uh, that they actually made a movie from. Yeah. Uh, you know. A rebirth out of tragedy it's uh it's it's amazing 
anyway, after so after graduate after graduating from from college, I I go to work for a little family run company, and I knew fairly quickly that that was probably a mistake. Uh, it was just um, if your last name uh, was not a certain one, you probably weren't going very far. Uh, and it and it just uh, it was a job. It was definitely not going to be a career. You've worked but for I, those people too. I've worked for those companies. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I began, I began hating every day. I had uh, what uh, Kristen refers to as Sunday dread. Uh, you know, about four o'clock Sunday afternoon, I started thinking, I've got to go in that place again tomorrow, and uh, it just—I mean, seriously. I, I mean, I would get knots in my stomach. It was, it was that bad. I. I, I disliked it and dreaded going there so much. And, uh, and so one day, um, I think I had quit without leaving about three times. Uh, and one day I just had such an awful morning and I was uh, much less of an even keel guy back in those days. Uh, and I, I went to lunch. Uh, there was a park across the street from our building. And uh, the more I sat there, I was just sort of, I stewed on it. And the more I thought about it, the more angry I got. You know, I, I hadn't learned to let things go at that point. And I just said, I'm not going back. Um, they had a, a guy who was a son-in-law of the founder who was supposed to be a general manager, but he was also a salesperson for the company. So he was offside a lot. And uh, so I went to one of the office staff. I wrote him a quick note and said, I just can't do this anymore. No notice, no nothing, and I left. And he called me later that afternoon, tried to talk me out of it. Said, you know, hey, we really need you. And but I said, you know, look, his name was Bob too. I said, Bob, I, I feel terrible that I can give you notice or anything, but I just can't deal with the, the owners. I can't deal with these people anymore. And he's like, you know, I can kind of sympathize with you. Um, and so, so this was. Um, this is in 1985, um, in like September of 85. And this is back, Brian, you might remember this. This is back in the, the days where MTV actually still played music videos. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I was trying to tell my son about that one day. And he's like, what? Yeah, what? They, they were, yeah. they played music videos. Yeah, I remember that. So, you know, being a musician from back in the day, I didn't think it was possible to get tired of watching music videos, but I discovered over the course of about three and a half or four months of being unemployed that you can get tired. You can watch enough music videos on MTV to get tired of watching music videos on MTV. And so, uh, you know, there was no internet. There was no, you know, monster.com or indeed or anything. It was, if you wanted to find a job, you looked in the Sunday newspaper. That's how it was back in those days. And so, you know, I would get the Sunday newspaper and I would apply for different things. And the application process was a lot harder in those days too. And not that I wasn't looking for something. I just, tough time in the economy, it was really hard to find something. And, and out of desperation, I saw an ad in the Sunday newspaper for a new Oldsmobile back car brand that doesn't exist anymore but a lot of people will remember Oldsmobile new Oldsmobile salesperson I'm 24 years old just turned 24 and I'm like man never saw myself as a salesperson 
and definitely not a set a car salesperson. Yeah, I want to throw up thinking about it. I'm like, but man, I need a job, and yep. I wonder if there's any money to be made doing that. And so I uh, went and had a series of three different interviews, and and they told me they said, you know, Bob, you're pretty young, um, you know, you're barely 24, and and uh, but you're you're pretty well spoken, and and you seem ambitious, and you know, the average Oldsmobile buyer, I think Brian was like. 52 uh and they said you know, yeah that you wasn't used? a young hip automobile no. even even back in the day if you had an oldsmobile it was kind of like well you either had kids because they had a station wagon version because my my parents had a an oldsmobile station wagon you had the station wagon version for for families and then you had the the version because you were just newly retired and and you didn't want to spend money on a cadillac right yeah, that, it was sort of a step down from a Cadillac, right? Yeah. In fact, our dealership was Oldsmobile and Cadillac. Like, we didn't sell Cadillacs because that was a different side of the store. But, uh, yeah, so so anyway, they hired me. They gave me a chance. And, and not really even sort of knowing what I was doing, but just working hard, treating people the way I thought I would want to be treated if I were shopping for a car. Brian, I started making four or five times as much money as I was used to making before. And I'm like, holy smokes. Uh, I said, I don't really like the car business because I don't know what it's like now, but this is the mid 80s. Um, it didn't really feel very straightforward to me. And that didn't really kind of fit with my core. But uh, I said, but I could get used to making this kind of money. You know, as if I didn't have to compromise my, uh, my morals. And so I had a, a, a guy who ended up being a friend recruited me into the real estate business. And I, that was a kind of a fun way to make a living, really good living sometimes and a terrible living sometimes. And I did that for 40 years. Bob, what uh, did you, I got to jump in here. What did you sure. learn from, from selling cars 35 years ago that you still put into practice today? Well, I, I think the biggest thing that I learned uh, really was that um, if you have a good work ethic, just that alone, um, that and some persistence, um, you'll beat most people. I mean, I, I, I became one of the top salespeople there, not really even knowing what I was doing, but you know, there were, uh, back in those days, Four days a week, we closed at 9 p.m. And I'm married, but I had no children at that point, so, and I needed to make money. So uh, after 8.30, when all the other salespeople sort of disappeared into the woodwork, somebody came on the lot, I was talking to them, right? And my manager started referring to me as king in the late night. Uh, and I got in a habit, you know, <laughs> if somebody came in at 8.45, I'd go out and greet them you know, be cordial, nice with them and, and introduce myself. And you were Johnny Carson before you were John, you, you and Johnny Carson <laughs> shared that same, that same title. Cause so, he was king yeah. of the late night. And, and so, I, yeah, he should yeah. have just called you Carson, you know, yeah, maybe <laughs> anyway. So I got in the habit of telling him, I said, listen, you guys may or may not be aware of this, but he was eight forty-five. We, we actually close in 15 minutes, but if you're serious about finding a car today, I'll work with you to, you know, as long as it takes to find you the car that you want. Are you serious about finding one? If they told me, yeah, I was in, right? 
you know, if they said, eh, we're just kind of kicking tires or whatever, but generally if they came on a lot that late, they were serious about it, yeah. right? They needed to find a car. Uh, same thing if somebody came in on a rainy day or a snowy day, right? Uh, so you just got to know. And, and the other thing I think that it really taught me was to not prejudge people. Uh, too many, uh, I think, people that are in sales do that. Because uh, if you have somebody come in in raggedy blue jeans before they were in style, raggedy blue jeans and a, a T-shirt, right, or a wife beater, uh, some people know what those are. And, yeah, we're familiar people... over here in the Mountain State with that. <laughs> that, that that's formal wear in West Virginia, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> so people would ignore them because they're like, oh, I'm not wasting my time with those people. And and I had a guy who uh, was dressed like that, and he was a farmer. And, and this was the first car he had, the first new car he bought in like 10 years. And he paid cash, pulled out a lot of cash and paid cash for it. Right. Nobody else wanted to talk to him. So and, and, and this is and correct me if I'm wrong. So this is probably in, in the downtown Cincinnati area where you, you were selling cars in, in that particular region, southwestern Ohio. Uh, southwestern Ohio, but not in Cincinnati. It was in a, a little town called Fairfield, Ohio. Yeah, I know right. Way. I know right where Fairfield is. My point to that, for the audience to give some clarity around that, is that is heavy farm country. You see a lot of farms in that in in that southwest Ohio area, especially rural southwest Ohio. And so it probably wasn't uncommon for some of those guys to roll in there that were farmers dressed like that. Um, because you'd see them in the grocery store and they'd be dressed like that. You'd see them out at Walmart or something like that. That that was the way they dressed. And so, you know, maybe, you know, did you did you find did you start to get some of those clientele like, hey, wait a minute, you know, this doesn't add up here. You're on an Oldsmobile dealer lot, you know, and and you're rolling up dressed like this. Well, yeah, and one of the things that I found, and by the way, the salespeople always had coat and tie back in those days. Yeah, that was, uh, you know, yeah. The, the salespeople are dressed way more casually in today's world. Um, you know, you go onto a car lot and, you know, people have polos on, yeah. right, with the with the dealer name, you know, over here on the left breast. But, uh, but back in those days, you had to have a coat and tie. Didn't necessarily have to be a suit. Couldn't be a sport coat or something like that. But that was the dress code, right? Hey, I, I was um, selling. I was selling food to restaurants, and my boss insisted on on coat and tie, or at least okay. a shirt and tie. Yeah. And of course, my wife said, um, "Can you expense your dry cleaning? Because when you come from some of these restaurants, you smell like a, a meat fryer." <laughs> I bet. But, but to your point, Bob, back in the in in those days salespeople had an image. It didn't matter what you were selling. This, the image of the salesperson was professional dress, sport coat or suit, you know, nice slacks, tie, shoes, shine. I mean, you know, that's where the wingtip got its popularity because most every salesperson was wearing wingtip shoes because right. that was an image builder for sale. I had to park there because it, it sparked something in my mind because I got in trouble one day. You'll, you'll appreciate this. I got in trouble one day because it was a summer day. It was about 98 degrees at 830 in the morning. And I thought, I'm going to put a polo on. 
And my sales manager surprised me by showing up at a restaurant about nine o'clock. He figured I was going to be there, but he didn't tell me he was coming. And we get in the car and he goes, we need to run to your house real quick. And I said, what are we going to run to the house for? He said, cause you're going to change into your shirt and tie. He said, cause you, you, you didn't, you don't have a shirt and tie on. I said, man, it's, it's 18,000 degrees outside today. And I didn't know you were coming. And I had to hoof it back 10 minutes to my house. Put a, I said, if I'm going to put a shirt and tie on, you're sitting in the car. I'm not inviting you in the house. Cause I I'm, I'm now I'm inconvenienced, but, but Bob, to your point, again, this is how business has changed today. And I didn't mean to jump off air, but I think it, you, you've hit on something there that now the evolution of sales has come to the point where if the salesperson is dressed more comfortably, the thought is the customer will be more comfortable and it's and it's now starting to form into that you know let's get comfortable let's get instead of the the clear delineation between salesperson and customer and i that's a beautiful point that you hit on there i i just i wanted to park there for just a minute yeah sure no no problem so uh yeah but as i think back on it you kind of reminded me you know some of the things that i did learn um you know, in, in the, uh, it was less than a year that I sold cars, but, uh, but there, I, and I think it's a good lesson for anybody who is sort of, you know, looking to level up is that even from a poor experience or a bad experience, what you, you can learn something from that, you know, what are the takeaways? And, and I think you can learn, and probably, frankly, you probably do learn more from your failures than you learn from your successes. And, and, and I think when you begin to look at failure as a teacher rather than as something to lament, then your, your perspective of it changes and, uh, and, you're, and you're less averse to failing. And, and once you can adopt that mindset, that's really where your your successes start to come more rapidly. When you go, when you're sort of, you become detached from outcome, I would call it, where you're just getting results. Some of them are going to be positive, some of them are not going to be uh, positive, uh, but what can you learn from those that aren't positive? And when you start doing that and you start reflecting on the actions that you took that, that led to, to a not success, then you, you just start looking at it differently. And that's, uh, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because I think that's, it's such an important lesson to learn. And it took me so long to learn that. You know, I was on a, a inter being interviewed on another show a few days ago. And one of the things that I told the host was, you know, man, I had to get my nose bloodied a lot before I stopped getting punched. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it's, uh, it's so, um, it, it's so important to, to learn those lessons um, because they can help you really improve over time. You know, I don't know if this is true, but I heard a story one time that the Apollo 11 moonshot 
the first successful uh, time they landed a man on the moon and brought him back safely to the earth was off course like 95% of the time. And they had to continue, continually do little tiny course corrections to make sure that they were on course. So you can be off course, you can get off course. In fact, you can get pretty far off course. And as long as you're willing to keep your eyes on the prize, knowing where you're going and, and having clarity on that and, and having a time frame, I think that's important. Let me back up a step. I don't think that's important. I know that that's important to have a time frame. Yeah, you know, time's time's only good uh, if it has a if it has an end, right? Well, and, and Bob, <laughs> you're a hundred percent right. And a lot of businesses don't make those tiny course corrections because they they are afraid that a tiny course correction will open up other problems that they either can't or won't solve in their business. And so even the minute course corrections become magnified. And of course, in, in, in the example that you gave, and I appreciate you using that example, it was a life or death thing. If they didn't make those tiny course corrections, they weren't gonna bring those men back safely. And, and man, spaceflight as we know it probably wouldn't exist because there would be so much fear about getting people home safely back to their families. I got to ask you this for a second, because something you said earlier about the first job that you had with a family company, I, I've been there. Mm. Was there one thing that you took from that experience so long ago that when you started your own company, you said, I'm not going to do this with my company like I saw the first time I worked for a, a family-owned company? Absolutely. Um, you know, there is a, there's a right way to treat people and there's a wrong way to treat people. And, and I can tell you that with that company, I, I got treated not like a human being, not like somebody who mattered. And so I've endeavored in all of my relationships to treat people, um, with the respect that they deserve and, uh, and with care. And, and it's, uh, and I think when you do that, um, you know, life's like a big mirror. It's going to reflect back to you. What you put out, um, is going to come back. And so, um, if that's the way you treat people, if you treat people with respect, if you, genuinely care about them if you're genuinely interested in them um then you will not even when they're screwing up which i probably was right um you know when you treat them with with care and understanding um and even if you have to have a conversation about something that they're doing wrong mm -hmm. don't make it personal it's about the behavior. It's not about the person. Well, who doesn't screw up in a job at 22 or 23 years old? There was, you know, I got my first sales job a month before I turned 23. And I had, I, there were days I was flying by the seat of my pants. I had no idea what I was doing. All I knew was just to keep my head down and, and work. And if, you know, if I messed up, that's what I had a boss for was to correct me. And, and, you know, that's the thing is, is you wish, you know, if I could go back to, 
to put my arm around 23-year-old Brian as a four, as 48-year-old Brian, I'd probably say, dude, here's some things you need to think about. <laughs> you know, here's some, here's some, you know, and by the way, it turns out, okay, you end up with a pretty wife and you end up looking halfway decent. You have a, you have a, you have a, a, a good looking kid. So, you know, it's going to be okay, man. You're, you're going to be all right. You know, everything's going to, everything's going to work out for you. Bob, I got to ask you this as we finish. This has been such a fun conversation. This is exactly the conversation I was hoping we would have when we started. And, and I hope you've enjoyed it as well. But I've got to ask you, um, what's your biggest piece of intentional encouragement to leave with the audience as we finish our conversation today? You know, I, I would tell people that uh, it's never as bleak as you think. Even on your worst possible day, and we all have those days from time to time, right? It's, it's not as bad as you think. And uh, I don't know if this is biblical, Brian, you might have more insight on this, but uh, I think it is. You know, there's a saying that, uh, I, I think it's a proverb, this too shall pass. Yep. Uh, so no matter where you are, if things aren't working out the way you wanted them to or thought they would, um, keep persisting forward. You know, everybody stumbles in life. And you know, I had an, uh, an early mentor of mine that said, everybody's going to stumble, but when you stumble, stumble forward, right? Mm -hmm. And so the only way things are not going to improve is if you just stop dead. And, and so, so don't do that. Um, you know, you can, you can work yourself out of a funk. I, I, I've done that so many times. And it's just, you know, that's where, that's where willpower comes in. And that's, I think, where you have, have to have clarity about where you're going. So many people are just, man, they expect to fail and hope to get lucky and win. But your expectations become your reality. So... So begin, I think that's a good place to begin, is to be setting your expectations. And not. And by the way, not what you tell the world you expect, but what you really expect, right? Mm -hmm. You need to amplify those um, because you're probably better than you think you are. You know, and since some of those trainings I was talking about that we've done, I've had some people tell me this overtly, and some people you can just tell by a change in their physiology that you know, over the course of, of uh, you know, one of these uh, training fun shops, they'll come up with two or three or four good ideas, either on their own or, or working on a team. And, and some people have told me, man, you know what? I'm a little sharper than I thought I was. I'm a little better than I've been giving myself credit for. And it just, if they carry themselves different and that, that's one of the most satisfying aspects for me. So I would tell, I would tell people listening to this or watching this, you're probably better than you think you are. You maybe are better than you've been giving yourself credit for. So keep hope, right. And keep going. Man, that's freaking brilliant right there. That is, 
<laughs> that is so good. Bob Sager, man, this conversation has been so much fun because again, it, it just, it, it's, it's real, it's happening. And, and I am so grateful for your time. You can find Bob on LinkedIn. Just search Bob Sager. You can find him on LinkedIn. My thanks as always to producer Bryce Sexton and technical advisor Matt Means. And the ultimate thanks goes to the Lord Jesus Christ who provides intentional encouragement every day of his world. And until next time, remember, every prayer, any time, and any place can be an intentional. I appreciate you joining us on the Intentional Encouragement Podcast. My pleasure to be here, Brian.